Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Joel. Worship team, just take a moment today just to tell them we love him. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Regardless of circumstances, we love Jesus. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Oh, how we love you, Jesus. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Congregation, let's be seated. As you know, the next couple of Sundays, we'll be asking those that are here to stay a little bit longer, and that will be because next week we have a very special guest. The candidate for your new senior pastor job will be here with his wife, and you get to meet them on Saturday. So it's not all about Sunday performance, how good they preach. You're voting on what you think they're going to be like from Monday to Saturday. Amen? <laughs> so make sure you get some really tough questions for them. <laughs> so, thank you. Wonderful sense of the presence of the Lord here today. Amen. So for the next couple of weeks, and uh, your superintendent has asked me to uh, help him out with uh, being here next week, so I'll be here to look after the uh, business part of things. And then the following week, the board said, we want to make sure that you're here to do the business meeting. <laughs> so in two weeks, I'll be here for that too. I don't know where I heard this story the first time, but it always is stuck with me. It's the story of a, a poor Chinese farmer and uh, he had one prize possession and this prize possession was this beautiful beautiful stallion pure black and it was just his, his prize he didn't even want to sell it to, in order to just get some more money and help them live but anyway one night there was a thunderstorm and this black stallion got so frightened it broke the through the corral gate and uh, off it went and this Christian Chinese farmer was very wise and he had all his neighbors come the next day and they sat down with him and they sympathized with him, empathized with him and oh they talked about how what a, a, a strike of mis misfortune bad luck this was and the wise old farmer said you never know, who knows well the next night his son woke up in the middle of the night and if he didn't hear some noise out when the old empty corral and he looked out and heard there's their horse had gone out and found a herd of wild horses and led them into the corral. Wow. So he slipped out of bed and closed the gate. <laughs> and all the neighbors came, right, the next day, and they said, oh, what a stroke of good luck, good fortune. And the wise old farmer said, well, don't know, you know. Well, a couple of days after he had all these horses now. His oldest son decided to break in one of the horses so he could ride it. He got on the horse, and wouldn't you know it, bucked him off, broke his hip, had a cast from here down. And all the neighbors gathered, and you know what they said. What a stroke of bad luck. <laughs> bad luck. Well, anyway, uh, later on that month, as a war was, had happened, uh, they, uh, they came along to conscript all the young boys to go to war, and uh, all the neighbors' boys went, never returned. But that boy couldn't go to war. 
And so, the moral of the story is, don't write your future based on your present. Amen? That's a message for us today. And I want to take you eventually to the book of Ruth, where we can talk about a lady, Naomi. Some people said they should have called it the book of Naomi, not Ruth, but there's good reason why it could have either title. But whenever I preach in the Older Testament, I always get you to say this verse with me, and that's found in Romans 15, verse 4. It says, everything, everything, every story in the Old Testament was written in the past to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Amen? We, know we need hope. We need encouragement, and we need to endure. And so as we look at this first chapter in the story of Naomi and Ruth, uh, we will hopefully be encouraged today. There's a, the title of my message taken from this passage is, Look, It's Barley Harvest. Look, It's Barley Harvest. And so today's message is about the providence of God. And the providence is not someplace in Rhode Island or Massachusetts, right? It's, it's actually what it means is the care of God. And we were, were expressing our love to the Lord because many of us have lived a number of years and we've seen God's good hand upon our lives in the deepest, darkest times and on the mountaintops. He's been there, his providential care. A part of the last verse of this chapter, I just want to take as kind of a springboard. It says in Ruth chapter 1, verse 22, arriving at Bethlehem as barley harvest was beginning. And we'll come back to that near the end of the message. Arriving in Bethlehem at barley har as barley harvest was beginning. The characters in the story that we're going to look at today found in the book of Ruth Main character is a Jewess. She was a wife, a mother, a mother-in-law, and eventually, at last, in the last scene of chapter 4, she's a grandma, and her name is Naomi. The other characters in the story, Ruth, who is a foreigner, a Moabite, and she becomes a daughter-in-law of Naomi, but becomes widowed, remarries. Others in the story, such as uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her two sons, Kilian and Malan, are also there. And finally, there's a character that is not even found in chapter 1, but he's there from 2 to 4, Boaz. He's a relative of Naomi. And so those are the people. The book of Ruth is a story in the Bible that's about how God moves in mysterious ways. It's about when tragedy after tragedy after tragedy attacks your life and your faith. It's about you and me wondering if this ordinary life of ours has any real significance it's about the providence of God, the care that God exercises over the universe, the loving care of God for his people and for his church and for a warden. There's an old hymn, and I think it was a poem verse that says, Judge not the Lord by your feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning, what looks like a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's what we sang about. He loves us and we love him. So let's see how this inspired, unknown writer of the book of Ruth can teach us some things today. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful things that have happened already in the service. We have met you as we've worshipped. We have seen you working 
in the lives of a young family willing to and wanting to dedicate their little one to the Lord. And we've seen those who are part of us want to become official members and commit themselves to the work of God and the kingdom of God here at Warden Church. And so we thank you for all those things and the great songs that we were able to sing as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Ruth takes place during the time of Judges. It follows the book of Judges, and it happened somewhere when the book of Judges was written. About a span of 400 years, 1500 B.C. to about 1100 B.C., from the death of Joshua to the time of Samuel, the the last judge, and Joshua, the leader. The book of Ruth is, as I said, right there after the book of Judges. The last verse in the book of Judges says something that kind of summarizes the book of Judges. If you read the book of Judges, it's really stranger than fiction. You're almost embarrassed to read it because of the awful things that God's people ended up doing. It's a very discouraging book. It's a book of downward spiral, really. But the last verse summarizes that day, those 400 years. And it says, in the days of Israel, in those days they had no king. So everybody did as they saw fit. That's what it says in the book of Judges. This week, as I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about, and I know this might come out of left field, but just give me a minute. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah had a vision of the Lord in the year that Uzziah died. Who was Uzziah? He was the king of Judah. The last part of his life was a very sad, sad time. For you see, he got himself proud, thought he could offer incense as a priest, and God struck him with leprosy, and he died in a house by himself the end of his days Jotham, his son, came along, kind of a co-regent near the end. In the year that Uzziah died, the book of Amos chapter 1 verse 2 says, two years after the earthquake when Uzziah was king. Historically speaking, there was an earthquake and it hit Jerusalem and thousands of people were killed. It's a sad, sad time for the people of Israel, particularly those living in Jerusalem And a sad time when Uzziah died, it wouldn't be much of a celebration for his life because of the way it all ended. So this book of Ruth takes place in a day when there are no kings, a very, very dark time. And then I thought to myself about Warden, and I think of Isaiah's vision. In the year 2022, when your pastor died. If we were to see the Lord, and you've been without a a senior pastor, you've had Robert Norcross and myself as interim, but you haven't had a senior pastor. And in the day that Uzziah died, no king was on the throne. He had a vision of a throne. Amen? And there was one seated on the throne, and that throne is never vacant. (laughs) The senior pastor position has been vacant for some months now. But God has never left the throne. You have never left his love. You have been in the hollow of his hand. He has had you in his hand. And God loves you. And in that year that your pastor died, God was on the throne. He has been on the throne ever since. 
In 2022, when COVID came, or 2020, sorry, when COVID came, he was still on the throne. So we've come through a dark time, and next week we're going to begin a new chapter. And he's on the throne, he's been on the throne through the whole time. But I just thought to myself, you know, I'm sure I wasn't back when your pastor passed and went to heaven and glory. But you know, I can only imagine what you must have felt like. But there was one on the throne said, it's, it's okay. I love you. I'm going to look after you. The providence of God. You know, when we look at the book of Ruth, we see a very dark time. If we skip ahead to the very last part of chapter 4, we would read words like this. Ruth would become the wife of Boaz. Ruth would have a son, Obed, Obed would be the father of Jesse, who would be the father of David, the greatest king in Israel has ever known, arguably, who would be the, this great king and be a descendant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? In the darkest time in the history of the nation of Judah, God was working for the glory of Judah. Amen? And he was preparing for the greatest king, the earthly king, David, and a descendant for the Lord Jesus Christ who would come as the Lion of Judah. Amen? So God was at work. In other words, right here in the midst of a time when it appears that God's purposes for righteousness and peace and glory for the nation of Israel were being frustrated, God is quietly at work in this one family, preparing for the greatest king of Israel. John Piper said this about the book of Ruth. He said, the book of Ruth is for you, if you feel that God's hand is against you and has crashed down upon you in bitterness. The message of the book of Ruth is for us to stay alert because sometimes the clouds come over our over top of our heads and we cannot see the sun. But the book of Ruth is there to tell us if you just look closely enough, you will see a few rays of sun beginning to poke their way through that dark cloud that's over your head, saying, He's on our side, regardless of the circumstances personally or as a church or as a nation that we go through. You know, over the last 20 years or so, I've been flying a lot in northern Ontario, and this week was no exception. When we left Timmins, it was a bit clouded over. I couldn't see the sun. It wasn't long before we were up above those clouds. And guess what? (laughs) The sun was shining. It's always shining. Amen. Today I want to look at four things. Naomi's severe misery, Naomi's special daughter-in-law, Naomi's simple theology, and finally her short-term amnesia or short-term memory. So let's look at the verses of Scripture, and they'll be on the screen, and and I'll read them. Starting at verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so that a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malan and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. And in the next uh, few verses, we uncover the misery of Naomi. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women one named Orpah and one named Ruth. And after they lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died. 
And Naomi was left without her her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard that in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of Judah by providing food for the people, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown your kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? (laughs) Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up so that you could marry them according to the custom? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. That was her perspective. And at at this, they wept aloud. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. You see, a famine had driven Naomi, Elimelech, and their two sons out of the land of Bethlehem to look for a place where there was food. In verse 1, at least it led them to think that's what they should do. Naomi knows that in those days, when they're God's people and they're in Judah, when a famine comes, it means that God is displeased with them. And why do I say that? I don't believe that happens for all famines. But in those days, in Leviticus it says, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I'll send you the rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops, and the trees of the field their fruit. So in the days of of the judges, when famine strikes Judah, I believe it's the hand of the Lord. He is trying to get their attention, and if you read the Bible, you'll find out that in the time of Judges, things are pretty bad. Now, there's this decision to go to Moab, and I think that is even contrary to uh, what God would have had them to do. Deuteronomy says, make no treaty with those Moabites, them, show them no mercy, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they'll turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. It says in verse 3, Elimelech dies. First thing that seems to happen when they get to Moab is, is that he dies. Now, if you're Naomi, what are you thinking? Wow, God. God's, God's disappointed with us. And my husband has died. She probably thought, oh, we shouldn't have gone to Moab. We could have gone someplace else, but Moab. Then her sons marry pagan Moabites, and they both die without having any children. Famine moved to a pagan land, death of her husband, marriage of her two sons to pagan women, and the death of her two sons. Now what? (laughs) You see, the stage has been set. In her mind, God has dealt bitter blows against her. Misery, her misery is seen in these verses. It says in verses 6 and 7 that the Lord brings aid to Judah. 
So Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepare to return to Judah, and at least they make it to the border. And it's, then it takes this large portion of Scripture, verses 8 to 13, just to talk about and, and unfold this event where Naomi's efforts to deter Orpah and Ruth from going back to Judah. Unusually large portion of Scripture for that little bit. But these verses that we find in 8 to 13, verses 11 and 12, will emphasize how, misery, how much misery Naomi has. She says in verse 13, All that remains for you, Ruth, Orpah, is widowhood and childlessness until we both die. That's her pessimistic outlook at the time. Then she says, the Lord's hand is against me. I'm jinxed. There's a curse on me because of what my husband and I have done. Naomi's advice to Ruth, go home, marry a Moabite. (laughs) That would be the best thing. Well, what's happening here is it's preparing us for a custom in Israel that's going to be revealed in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And that custom is that if a husband dies, like Malan and Kilion, the sons, if, if that's what happens, it's the duty of the next closest relative or kinsman to be able to come along and marry that woman so that they can continue on the, the family line. And uh, so that was the, that's the plan, that's the custom. And what's going to happen in chapters 2, 3, and 4 is going to totally revolutionize Naomi's thinking and her life, actually, her whole condition. You see, evidently, in all of this dark cloud and this trouble, Naomi has forgotten that there's relatives back there, Boaz, for example, and another relative even. And they could marry Ruth, and they could bring, bring along children for Naomi and her, her husband who's not living. The lesson that has come to us through this little bit that we've read, when you decide that God is against you, If you ever decide that, you're always going to exaggerate your hopelessness. And that's what happened in this situation. She just completely, well, God's against me. I'm jinxed. We shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't have, you know, all of these things. It just exaggerated her hopelessness so much so that she'd forgotten about Boaz and this other relative as well. She was blind to any rays that, of sunlight that might have been trying to poke their head through that dark cloud that was over her head that was real. And uh, didn't realize that it was God who had broken the famine. That God was opening the door for her to come back to Bethlehem and Judah. It was God who had preserved this wonderful man called Boaz, a kinsman, redeemer, and not let him marry another so that the name could go on by him marrying uh, Ruth. It was God who was going to put it in Ruth's heart to bind herself to Naomi. And it was God who was going to put it in Ruth's heart, not just to care for Naomi, to, to love her, but to go out and find food for her. It was God who was going to put her into the very field of this relative called Boaz. <laughs> who was going to notice her and be kind to her. And, you know, the story unfolds, they eventually get married. It was God who was doing all of that. And here's this lady who thinks that she's cursed by God and that God has forgotten her. 
Oh, there's other things in these verses, you know, to show Ruth's amazing commitment to Naomi. When you think about it, you know, Orpah kissed, kissed Naomi goodbye, but Ruth held on to her. Naomi tries to push Ruth off, but Ruth won't be deterred. Instead, she binds herself to her mother-in-law. And Naomi has painted the bleakest possible picture that you could imagine for the future. Orpah walked her way, and Ruth held her hand and walked into this dark, bleak future that Naomi had, had painted. Which brings us to this special daughter-in-law in verses 16 and 17. I call them Ruth's famous words. I went through them just yesterday with uh, my nephew who I'm going to perform a marriage for. We talked about these, the vows that, that are a quote from here. It says in verse 16, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where I go, you will go. Where, I, where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I am going to be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, Naomi, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was not going to be deterred and determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. You see, Ruth is going to leave her own family and her own land. She's accepting widowhood and childlessness for the rest of her life. She's probably around 25 years of age. They married young. She's only been married 10 years or so. So she's around 25 years, a whole life ahead of her. And she doesn't know anything about Boaz, a possibility that there's a legal relative that could marry her. All she knows is that she's going to a new land with a new language that's unknown to her, and she doesn't seem to be afraid. She's, she's an amazing person, isn't she? Her vow to Naomi is a commitment more radical than marriage. This Saturday coming, I'm going to get my nephew to res respond until death do us part, right? You know, and then go marry somebody. She says, no, I'm going to die where you die. What a radical commitment. More radical than marriage, isn't it? She just said, this is it. If you die, I will stay. I will die. I'll be buried in your tomb. An amazing commitment for a young lady who is a Moabitess, first of all, who doesn't know anything about the land of Israel. And the most amazing thing is she says, your God is going to be my God. How did she come to understand this God? I don't know for sure. Perhaps it was being married for those numbers of years to Kilion. And when Kilion would tell her about the God of their nation who rescued them through the Red Sea or many of the other exploits of Joshua and Moses. Who knows? Who knows? But there was something about that God and the God that Naomi had that she wanted to have. And she said, your God will be my God. She's determined to follow and serve the God of Naomi no matter what the God of God's hand has done. Somehow Ruth had come to trust the God of Naomi and was going to go with her into this bitter experience. You know, her theology is pretty simple, number three. It says in verse 19, So the two women went on until they arrived at Bethlehem. Gone all of that time. When they arrived at Bethlehem, no small stir. Remember that word moved in the old King James? It's seismo, so from earth, the place was shaken. Can this be Naomi? Where's Elimelech? Where's Kilian? Where's Malan? Who's this Moabitess? They can't believe it's her. And that says the whole town was stirred because of them. 
And the women exclaimed, can this be her? This Naomi, Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, in case you're wondering. She told them, call me Mara, because the Lord has made my life very bitter. Mara is bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. The townspeople don't recognize her, or pardon me, they recognize her, and they call her Naomi. She says, no, no, not, not pleasant anymore. It's bitterness. <laughs> Naomi is simple theology, not 100% correct, but pretty simple, like most of us, like me. <laughs> she believes God exists, she believes that he's almighty, and she believes he's sovereign, which in her mind means he's the author of all cause. That, what, that's what that means in her mind, that God killed my husband and my two boys because of look what we did. That's a bit of a, a faulty understanding of the sovereignty of God in my theology. She said, he has afflicted me. We do not serve an omnicontrolling God. You decided on your own will to get up this morning and come to church. Sovereignty does not mean omnicontrolling. God has a world that he's, he's there supervising, superintending, but the prince of the power of the air is the God of this place, the devil. And, and things, bad things happen. God can intervene at times. Many times he does, more often than I'll ever, ever know. Naomi praises, uh, or, pardon me, I praise God for her confidence and her simple, though a little bit incomplete, theology. Which brings to the last point. Her temporary amnesia. Some people have temporary amnesia, or short-term memory, if you want to call it that. You see, what's happened to Naomi, well, everything bad happened to her in, in Moab, was that she had forgotten the, some of the stories. The story of Joseph, for example. Joseph, he was betrayed by his own family, he was framed by an adulteress. He was thrown into prison and left in an Egyptian prison for some time. He had every right, he had every right, Joseph, to say, the Lord's hand is against me. But Joseph did not say that when years later his brothers came to Egypt. And they thought he was going to kill them and get even and be revengeful, but he wasn't. You see, the book of Psalm, or he says there, and we'll come to it in a bit, he says, as for you, brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. There's sovereignty. There's sovereignty. Psalm 105, verses 16 and 17 says, God called down a famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies and sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. Wow. That's what I understand to be all things working together for good. Was it right that his brothers lied to their dad, Jacob, and said he was killed by wild animals? Was it right that they sold him? No. But God took something bad, and he had this plan that one day he would be able to save his people and, his, and Jacob and all of his family, and he would do it by sending. Sometimes we go through troubles, but if we could just have the perspective of the psalmist who said God sent Joseph to Egypt. His brothers did it. Potiphar didn't. All of that. 
It says that, uh, you know, I look at Joseph and I thought, this guy is some superhero, like, not me. <laughs> I'm not like, I could never, I don't think, say, you meant it for evil, <laughs> but God meant it for good. How did he do that anyway? Is he some superhuman person? <laughs> I don't think he is. I think he's, I'm a little bit like him, or he's a little bit like me, maybe that's a better way of saying it. It says that while he was the prime minister in Egypt, he, had, he married and he had two sons. And it says in Genesis 41, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh. And he said, it's because God has made me forget all the trouble of my father's house. And he had a second son and named him Ephraim. And he said, because the God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. We get to the place of forget, or we get to the place of fruitfulness as a Christian when we go back to those places of hurt and difficulty and trouble. And God helps us forget. Obviously, He didn't forget, but He did forget, if you know what I mean. He forgot the pain. God helped him. And so He says, Manasseh, at this moment, I am no longer, I no longer have any bitterness in my life for what my brothers did and why I'm stuck here in Egypt and why that man did not, that butler did not remember me when it wasn't all of those things. He says, uh, I've forgotten all the pain. That's a great moment for us as Christians because everybody here has something that we can look back on. Some of you, many things that you can look back on that are hurts and they still hurt today. But God wants to help you even today to forget you know what I mean? Take away the pain is what's happening. And then he has a second son and he says, now my life can be fruitful because I have forgotten. Amen. God has taken away the pain. And so that's what happened here. He had the second son. That's why he said in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I guess you could call that 50, 20 vision. We kind of need that, don't we? Naomi had forgotten that, and I don't blame her one bit. You know, Pastor Jerry's here, and he and I have been in ministry for a while, and we've learned that, uh, you know, we have to be patient with people in this life who receive blow after blow after blow. It's not easy. And Naomi needs a little bit of help, and some people need a little bit of help. So we must be patient with people when they go through difficulty, and we just pray that they'll have that Manasseh moment. <laughs> when God will take that pain away. Not the memory, but the pain. And so, it's a very delicate and beautiful touch. I don't know who this author is, but he, he adds this just as he ends chapter 1. Truly superb. I believe he's a clever theologian, this person, whoever wrote it, an author, master theologian. He says, arriving in Bethlehem as barley harvest was beginning. Wow. See, that verse looks backwards and it looks forward. It says God has ended the famine and now he's going to care for you. Looking back, it says God has ended the famine. Looking ahead, it says if Naomi could only imagine tomorrow what's going to happen in that field. <laughs> for Boaz is going to see this beautiful lady, Moabitess, He's going to have mercy on her. He's going to make sure that she gets lots of food to bring home to his relative, Naomi. And oh boy, a relationship 
ignites and there's this love that takes place. What, a, what an amazing guy he is. There was another person that could have claimed her as his wife, but as soon as he found out she was a Moabite, forget it. <laughs> but Boaz, no. And he did it the right way. And they were married. <laughs> and he became, she became his, his wife. So in verse 21, here stands Naomi with Ruth by her side, and she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. <laughs> How many daughters-in-law? <laughs> Don't even get noticed by mother-in-law. <laughs> it happens sometimes. Not very often, I hope. Naomi has a sight problem. <laughs> Open your eyes, Ruth. <laughs> Ruth is going to go to the field of Boaz tomorrow. She's going to get married. They're going to have a child. And you're going to have a grandchild. And the family's it's all going to work out. What would you say if she could only see just a few months in the future? This is Naomi I'm talking about. This woman, Ruth, is going to bear this grandson who's going to be the descendant of the great King David and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Verse 17 in chapter 4, the end of the book. This is what the people are saying. Praise be to the Lord, Naomi, who has given you this daughter-in-law. <laughs> Imagine Jewish people saying, praise God that he's, she's given you a Moabite who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. And it says, Naomi, it's your son. Well, no, 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 it's Ruth's. Well, yes and no. It's also Naomi's son. God has given you a grandson. And so they rejoiced. It says they were dancing in the streets. And all for the time when God takes those bitter experiences that we go through helps us to forget them, have a Manasseh moment, brings us into a fruitful time when we can dance and, and praise the Lord and all of this stuff. I remember being in Moose Factory a few years ago and uh, was with one of our native pastors. We're having a conference. And there was one lady. She was at the altar and she was, she was louder than the rest of them pretty well. And she was just lost in God. She was just loving God. And pastor leaned over to me and said, you know that lady there? Um, she had, she, at one time, to protect her life, she had to take her husband's life. It was one of those situations like that. But through that, she worked. She had a Manasseh moment where, it, in order, you know, it was self-defense kind of a thing. But she was free. She was dancing. And there was joy in Bethlehem that day for Naomi. Naomi, God has given you a son. <laughs> there, Ruth gets forgotten again, right? Now, look what God has done for you. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, folks. Trust him for his grace. Behind that seemingly frowning uh, providence, he hides a smiling face. There's three lessons I want to wrap this up with. The first one is life is very, sometimes very, very hard. No question about it. Harder for some than others. Well, you might say that things went wrong for Naomi and her husband because they sinned by moving to Moab. And they, she sinned again when she allowed her sons to marry Moabite women strictly against Scripture. The Bible does say, however, in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Maybe she was just being going through a difficult time. Well, let's suppose for a minute all this trouble that she went through, loss of her husband and two sons, was because of sin. 
Let's just pretend, for think for a moment. Well, then that makes this story today doubly encouraging to me. If it was sin that brought Ruth into the family, isn't it doubly astonishing that God would take that same woman and make her the descendant of the greatest king in Israel, and Judah, David, and a descendant of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So what's the mess? Don't ever let or ever think that the sin of your past means there's no hope for your future. Amen? Second lesson I get, even though God's providence seems very, very hard at times and His love distance, in all His works, God is purposing for our happiness and our good. All things work together for the good of those that love the Lord. Told you this before, but uh, two and a half years ago, lost my daughter-in-law. My son's still with uh, three little preschoolers, and uh, the clouds over our house. Uh, you know what? I'll be honest with you. I know my theology and my God, but I still can't see any beams of sun through this dark cloud. I just can't. Nor can my son. But written on the window of their kitchen, it's still there today. She wrote it three years or, or so ago when she found out she had terminal cancer. Romans 8:28. All things work together for good to those that love the Lord. Amen. Still there today. <laughs> Who would have thought here in the time of Judges that God was working in the lives of a solitary family to prepare for the for King David and Jesus Christ. And that's just on the national level. What about your own personal life? If anything has befallen you in the past, and I'm sure it has, at some point in your life to make life look hopeless, jinxed, cursed, learn from the book of Ruth that God is plotting for your glory right now. Amen? And so you need to trust Him for this. For it says in the book of Romans, everything that was written in the past was written to encourage us, that we might endure and that we might have hope. May God grant us hope today. If you're under a cloud, May he grant you hope today as you look up and you see the cloud. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. Those clouds you so much dread are filled with mercy. One day, they're going to break on your head. Hallelujah. 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 Which simply says the best is yet to come. Naomi and Ruth and all the townspeople in Bethlehem are going to be dancing in the streets. And as Yogi Berra said, right, it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> Let's stand together as the worship team comes. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you, God, for the Holy Bible, the Older Testament and New Testament. Thank you, it's one book with one message, and today I pray that message will set the captive free, will help us help the one under the cloud to see that there are some small rays of sunshine peeping their way through those clouds. We thank you that above the cloud there's always a smiling God, a loving God, one who cares for us, one that, as we sung earlier, we love. And I just thank you for this congregation, that during this time of transition, in these last three years of somewhat cloudy weather, loss of a pastor, COVID, that there's a God who's above the cloud. And so I pray, God, right now that we would be able to receive hope and encouragement 
to endure this day, that the best is yet to come for Warden Church. Oh God, this is what I pray, this is what I trust, so that, Lord, you will break with mercy upon this congregation in the days ahead, that they may have the greatest days, building on the great foundation that's been here for years. And so we pray this all to the glory of God and for the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.